This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and disruption and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host, and the principal of Adam and Teen Energy. On today's show, I interview Bernadette Johnson of Enveris on roiling oil markets globally. It was a really interesting conversation. Bernadette is an extraordinary expert taking the complexity of the markets and boiling them down uh, to what we can understand. I was surprised at how optimistic her view of the future is. To learn more about these webinars, previous podcasts, and our work at Adam and Team, you can visit our website at energythinks.com. Now here's my conversation with Bernadette. So Bernadette, when the pandemic was just really starting to hit our awareness in the US, we were hit with an oil price war. And I'd like to hear what you think about that. Coincidence or were the Saudis and the Russians uh, trying to take advantage of the drop in demand? Uh, tell us about how the world way back a million lifetimes ago in March looks uh, from your perspective. Yeah, so good question. And I would, so I would, I would preface it with, everything we're seeing unfold in the oil markets, it's really unprecedented. We've never seen demand destruction like this. We never saw price wars to that level. We've seen price wars before, right? But this was significant, the timing of which was significant. Um, I would say it was partially timed with, with the demand destruction because that forced the issue. Because all, then all of a sudden the market had way too much crude. And Saudi Arabia and OPEC were just simply not willing to be the only ones that saw production come down to balance the market. But this had been brewing for a while, right? We've had negotiated cuts with OPEC plus, including Russia, the big one, for several years, right? Back to 2016 when they first negotiated this. And so it hasn't been without bumps along the way. And this has been pretty painful, right? These cuts, the idea originally was you cut supply to, to, to bring the price up. And really, they've never been successfully able to bring the price above really about $70 long-term. And that wasn't the original intention. So I think it's been, it's been a rocky road. I think this new world where prices are not going to be $150 per barrel for oil anytime soon. This has been a hard thing for OPEC, for, for Russia, for everybody to really see unfold and, and I guess get comfortable with because we're not going back to the old way. So this was something that probably needed to happen. Um, timing was, you know, when you see this level of demand destruction that we've never seen before, you pile all that on nothing that Saudi Arabia does is unintentional, right? They know their power in the market. They know what they can do. And the way that these contracts are structured and the way that Russia, for instance, sells a lot of barrels on the spot market. So anytime Saudi Arabia shows up to any of their long-term buyers and says, you have to take this cargo and you can't reroute it, it means pushing out other cargoes they already bought. And a lot of those cargoes are Russia, right? So this is very specifically engineered specifically because of what happens in the market. And, and Saudi Arabia knows all of those things. Russia felt particular pain because of all of those things. So it feels, feels like chaos, right? Like what's going on? Do people really understand what's going on? And I think when you know the details, you look at it and you say, they all know exactly what they're doing. None of this is, is, is an accident. And somehow that's not comforting, right? That, that all of this has been in many ways orchestrated. 
So I never thought that I would have my kids asking me if we could buy a hot tub to store oil when price went negative. And then I never thought that uh, every day I see oil above $30, I would rest easier and enjoy my day a little bit more. Um, so we see that we're, we don't have the crisis around storage, I think, right now. And we see a little bit of recovery and optimism in the oil markets. What do you see? What's your assessment of what's happening and, and what's coming with both oil demand, with storage, with price? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think we're going to see a lot, of, a lot of volatility. I have significant concerns that we get back down to $20 or maybe a little bit lower before we get up to 40 and I think it's it's interesting though, because today's price, $33. Um, yesterday, right, the contract rolls, everyone's talking this week about, oh, are we gonna see very negative prices again? And we didn't. And I think when we saw those negative prices last month, we predicted this. We said, that, that was an unprecedented event. We had never seen negative prices before. Why would we think that that would be the new normal, right? And so the way that I think about it, and maybe the easiest way to, to think about it at a high level is that, price will do whatever it needs to do so that you don't blow through storage, right? You cannot blow through storage, that's not a thing. Like you cannot get too full and all of a sudden you have oil laying on the ground, right? That is not a thing that can happen operationally. It's the same thing with gas markets. Prices do whatever they need to do so that we don't blow through storage. And so with oil, there was all these concerns, storage is gonna fill up, storage is gonna fill up, but it, it cannot, right? It physically cannot fill up. And the people that own storage, a lot of those folks are operational like refiners. They're not going to let their storage fill up because then it, it limits your flexibility. Then when recovery happens, you have a lot less flexibility to switch tanks to different refined products or crude or anything. So that was never going to happen. The, the piece of the storage market that was that causes the prices to do crazy things is the part that's not owned by those people. It's the part that's owned by traders, marketers, people trying to take advantage of the arbitrage. Right? I want to buy cheap crude now. I want to store it. I want to sell it in the future for a higher price. And if I can more than cover the cost to store it, I just made money. So there's a large part of the industry that does that, whether it's on the financial side, whether it's physical traders and physical owners of storage, there's a lot of that activity. So negative prices, that was all about the financial kind of speculator community. They're in there, they're hedge funds, they're trading futures for crude. They are a very important part of the system because they add all this liquidity, but it also means they're not actually ever going to show up at Cushing and take barrels. So they need to get out of their contract. And if, and what happened with CME and all those, all those prices going negative, why did they let it go negative? Because you had to let it go negative for the market to find a price where those financial speculators could get out of their contract and somebody that actually had physical storage or had the ability to take the other side would do it. And they wouldn't do it at zero dollars. And they wouldn't do it at negative $5 and they wouldn't do it at negative 10, right? So we keep going until every last contract is sorted out and it took us to very negative pricing. And so that was, it's definitely a financial dynamic. Um, it's part of the market. Now, knowing that prices again, do whatever they need to do. So you, you don't blow through storage. The price you need to see to shut in crude, which is what had to happen because demand destruction, 20 to 30% globally came off very quickly. People start sheltering in place. They start staying home. They're not filling up their tank with gasoline, right? So like you and I, when's the last time we got gas? So that's a problem. If you don't buy gas, then the refiners can't sell their gas, which means they don't buy crude. And these, these wells we have producing, they decline pretty quickly, but not that quick. So what had to happen was a price had to come down. You had to shut in existing wells because there wasn't a buyer for that crude. But the price to do that, that's a different price than what's the price needed to keep it in the ground, right? We're at $33. You're not hearing producers come out and say, oh, we're turning on all these wells. 
it's, it's not happening, right? Because you still need to have a buyer to then sell your crude in June or in July. So there's, it certainly, again, it kind of looks like chaos from the outside, but all of these things, the market actually is working pretty efficiently. We would say prices will recover. We probably though drop back to $20 before we see a longer term recovery. And right here, this $30, $33 price, it's really more around, there's little activity, who's out there actually transacting at that price. It's very little open interest. It's very, very slim, right? So this is really not yet a market that's in recovery. We're still early innings. So we might be second inning at this point, where a couple of weeks ago we were kind of in the first inning. Talk a little bit more about the price going down to 20. That is because um, there's not enough price uh, to turn production back on, or is that a, ma a matter of demand? There's just not enough demand, and we're going to see that essentially we're not going to have enough storage to motivate buyers to keep the price going up. What, what takes us backwards to 20? Yeah, so that's a good question. It's, it's really more about, um, it's really about refiner behavior. And so if we think, again, we'll pull it back to the high level, the difference between $20 a barrel and $30 a barrel is not that meaningful in terms of economics. Like in the US, unconventional drilling, there's no rig that's gonna make money drilling a well under $30. There just isn't, right? There's no well in the country where you can get a break even under $30 over the life of the well. If that was a thing, you would still, you would see, you wouldn't see as many rigs continuing to come off and you would see different announcements from operators maybe just for those sweet spots, but you would see it. So nothing's economic at 30, nothing's economic at 20, certainly nothing's economic lower, right? So the difference between the two in terms of the balance is not re really meaningful. The difference though can be refiners, right? So what happens with refiners is all eyes are on those weekly numbers that came, come out from the EIA that shows you how, how high utilization the refiners are running their facilities. Because that's, that should be one of the earliest signs we have that there's actually recovery happening. Because if they're able to sell their products like gasolines or diesels or all of it that comes from a barrel, then they're going to pull them out of storage. Then they're going to start running their refineries at higher rates to make more products to continue to sell to those buyers. So what that means is they start selling products. They start ramping up their refineries. It means they go out and try and buy more crude, right? So then there's all of a sudden buyers in the market. Producers are getting more activity from their marketers and folks that are buying crude. So that's how the system will work. The tricky part is, Refiners are not used to this level of volatility and this level of demand destruction. Is it, are we going to shelter in place again? Which states are going to release restrictions? Are people actually going to feel comfortable driving? What's happening to things like trucking fuel? Um, if people aren't buying cars, right? You're not moving some of these goods across the country. Like all these things are so connected that there's a lot of unknown right now. So refiners might start selling more gasoline, which is what's happening because we're starting to see people move around more. And then they say, oh, well, we're seeing some kind of recovery. Let's start ramping up our facility. But refiners are, are traditionally very backward looking planners because they can be, right? They're not used to this level of volatility. So they're looking at these data points, they're making decisions to ramp up. But for us, we would say it's probably too soon because you are seeing gasoline recover a bit, but you are seeing still stocks continue to build for what we call the middle distillates, like trucking fuel, like ultra low sulfur diesel. Those things are very tied to the macro economy. So this level of unemployment, it means that people aren't buying as much stuff, right? So we're not moving as much stuff across the country and that takes fuel, distillates. Airline traffic, right? We're not flying, we're still not flying. So that part of the barrel is still not recovering. So there's still a lot of trouble in parts of this market that refiners are kind of 
they're trying to balance all these things. They're moving their numbers around and it's, it's a little bit, we'll call it volatility, right? They're probably going to adjust back down before we see a longer term recovery. So that's so interesting. And I'm just going to, um, push you on a, a point that I heard and make sure I heard it correctly. Um, so I had not been thinking about this interim step of refiners actually having to work off their stock and uh, before they're buying crude again. Uh, we, we are seeing this a couple states, uh, all the states, but a couple states last week opening, all the states opening in some way. Uh, globally, uh, some of the developed economies are reopening. It sounds like you think it's too soon for us to get optimistic that we can foresee a price increase that or activity that affects refiners and then price. Is that is that right? You, you essentially think we still have a, a month or two that we would have to see sustained activity before we could see price increases? That's right. Yeah. And I think another way to look at it is like the price, the $33 price, the June contract rolled this week, right? So that's, it's kind of nitty gritty trader speak, but essentially the, the contract that's trading right now is for July delivery now. So we're still called 40 days out from that. So what you see happening with price has to do with fundamentals in July. And by July, it does look better, right? Then we are expecting more orders to be lifted, more activity, more of this demand to come back, but we still have 40 days to get there, right? And it's, it's, not definitely, it's definitely not a for sure thing either. Could you see new orders enacted if you start seeing a spike in cases or problems? You could see that. Um, I think it's interesting because we're about two weeks behind Europe in terms of the, the way that the time frame or the, the, um, the timeline trajectory and how this has unfolded. So we are starting to see in Europe some more positive signs around road congestion, right? We can see road congestion and that's a big indicator of some of this fuel use recovery. In China, we actually have road congestion data that says it's higher than pre-quarantine levels. So people, when you do relax quarantines and you get people out, they do respond very quickly, but that's, that's only part of the barrel. That's the people that are driving vehicles. The other pieces that are tied directly to GDP and things like unemployment, those are the worrying parts, right? So jet fuel. After 9-11, it took three years for the airline industry to get back to normal levels. And that was a similar thing where people were uncomfortable flying or maybe afraid to fly, right? Are you going to get in a plane with your whole family this summer? Probably not, right? Are you going to go to Hawaii like you had originally planned? You're probably not. Might you take a road trip? Like we're seeing people, I'm going to rent an RV and I'm going to drive here. That's going to happen. And that can actually be a good thing because it's it's less efficient to move a person a distance in a car than it would be in a plane. So that's actually a good thing for demand that we'll be using more fuel to move around. But air kerosene that we use for jet fuel, that's a problem. There's also about 20% of the barrel that's used for plastics and rubbers. So that a lot of that goes into vehicles, right? How many people are out there planning to buy a new car this year with all this uncertainty around jobs and furloughs and pay cuts and record unemployment, right? So those things, are directly tied to overall GDP growth and health of the economy. So there's definitely still pockets that are concerning, but we do see, I think a silver lining, we do see road traffic picking up, especially in areas where it's, they're a little further along the path like Asia and Europe. And so those are good data points that we're tracking certainly. And that's, I think part of what's causing refiners to say, oh, it's, it's fine, let's start buying crude again. And maybe that's a little too soon, but we'll see. So interesting uh, the way you've broken it up into uh, essentially transportation of individuals versus all of the um, precursors to goods and services that, that come out of the oil chain. So thanks for talking about that. That's super novel and interesting to me. The, um, let me ask you to look 2020, 2021. Of course, no one knows how 
the pandemic recovery happens, do you anticipate um, a, a super slow recovery? Are there conditions that would create a healthy recovery for the oil and gas industry in North America? What, what's your thinking about what the next uh, six to, to uh, 18 months looks like for the oil and gas industry? Sure. So we're thinking, we're definitely expecting price recovery and really to start in a strong way Q4. So Q3, the challenge is, uh, you alluded to the, the stock build, right? All, this whole Q2 where we've been putting all this material, whether it's refined products or crude in storage. Well, to have a long-term price recovery, you need to have supply and demand come back together. So right now we're still way oversupplied. We're still adding a lot of crude in storage globally every day. When the demand comes back, all of a sudden supply and demand come back together. But then you actually need demand to pop up above supply because that's how you work off stocks. That's how you start pulling things out of storage. And so that, that dynamic where we're gonna, we have record stock levels, we've got to work them off in Q3. By Q4, you start running a pretty significant deficit that starts escalating that rate of, of stock correction. Then you start to see a recovery, right? That's the order of when prices should really start to recover. So we would say you probably should need a price in the 30s for most of this year. Q4 into Q1 of next year, then you start getting into 40s. By the end of the next year, you should be at the 50-55 mark, maybe a little bit higher. So that would be, I mean, today, that sounds like great news, right? If you tell that, I mean, operators, it's, it's a new weird world where all of a sudden a $50 price or a $30 price is much better news than it has been. But that's, that's I think, the reality is that the market, as quickly as it goes upside down and prices collapse, you also see recovery because the world is still very dependent on oil and gas, but oil particularly, 100 million barrels a day. Today, it's lower than that, right? But it's a very big, it's the largest part of the energy stack uh, and it's energy is the world's largest industry, right? So this is still, we hear about renewables, we hear all that and it's true, it's growing, but we're still very dependent on hydrocarbons. So once you get people moving again, start to see air travel recover, start to see overall macroeconomics improve, then you start, you do recover demand fairly quickly and you get back up to that 55, 60 price. We would also say by 2022, we should be probably above 60, right? Hopefully. Um, what could what could break that? Another surge in virus levels, new stay at home orders, more, uh, another resurgence, call it in the fall. So what happens if we start school again? We start to see cases pick up, everything gets shut down again and then everyone's at home. Then again, you see that demand destruction and you just draw out the recovery by a couple quarters. So a couple quarter draw out, isn't, it's still not the end of the world. So it, we're definitely, it's gonna get better, just not tomorrow. Good. You make, and you even just saying $60 oil makes my day brighter. So I, uh, I appreciate that. We're starting to get some awesome audience questions in. So I want to make sure that all of you get those questions. in, so we have time to answer them before I turn to those, um, though, talk of, uh, 2021 makes me, uh, wonder, there are some commentators out there who are saying we're systemically underinvesting in oil and in a few years, with developing economies growing around the world, demand will return at some point. Do you see a massive price spike in an unknown number of years because of systemic underinvestment? Or do you think we're in a, a new normal of plenty of supply no matter uh, how demand recovers? So I think it's how you define price spike. 
So we are expecting that at this, this event, even though it's unprecedented, this is the third price collapse in 12 years, right? This is, we're on a pretty quick cadence now for price collapse. And a big part of that is because the US is now the largest producer, right? If you think back to 2005, we were not the largest producer. Our supply was going down. It was a completely different environment. The world was talking about peak, uh, peak oil supply. What were we gonna do when we run out? Prices were going to the moon. US unconventionals really changed that whole picture. And the fact that we can bring this much new supply out, we were almost at 13 million barrels a day of production in March. So dramatically higher than we were historically. That mean, that put us firmly in number one, number one producing position for crude, for NGLs and for natural gas globally. So we are the largest producer of hydrocarbons. We're gonna lose some production this year, right? We're gonna drop, we know that, but we still the fundamental uh, gas and oil in place, all those assets, they don't go away, right? You just delay production. You lay down rigs and you bring them back when prices recover and you can justify the investment. And so what it means is the asset's still there, we know the break-evens across the country, a lot of them, like the Permian in particular, or even places in Colorado here, we have a lot of production that comes back in the money at a price about below $50. So 40 to 50 is a really important range for bringing a lot of US supply back on and back into the money. You get another chunk of supply between 50 and 60. And so that would put us in a place where we could grow a million barrels or 2 million barrels a day year over year again. And so that supply is still out there. It's really a function of price. And for us, we would say the price is going to increase. And we would say it's actually going to increase higher now than it would have been before this mayhem because there's more risk now. And the market is very efficient at pricing in risk. So if all of a sudden we believe that you could have a price collapse every five years, then producers or the investors in the capital markets, they're simply going to demand a higher rate of return before you drill that well. So if before you needed a 20% rate of return or 15%, now maybe you need 20 to 25%. All that does is push the commodity price up, right? It's, it's the same dynamic of us here in Colorado. If you have more political risk and risk that will have ballot initiatives or things like that happen, it just pushes the price up because it's, it's a little more risky, a little more expensive to do business. But the market is actually really good at handling that and pricing that in. So we're gonna get to a higher price, 60 or 65. And to your original question around, are we underinvesting? The U.S. Is, can grow production, but the U.S. is never going to be, it can't be the only place that grows production because the market's too big. It's 100 million barrels a day, and we are 13 million barrels a day of that. And the natural decline for the whole world is about 5%. So every year, we have to show up with 5 million barrels more. We have to invest enough to generate 5 million more, plus we were growing 1% to 2% per year. So now it's we need to show up with about 7 million barrels of new production every single year. The U.S. might bring two of that, one to two, but what about the other five? The other five needs to come from large-scale global conventional projects. And we were on track to hit about one discovery every five years. So the last one was Guyana, right, several years ago. We missed an investment cycle because of the last price collapse, 2015, right? Now we're doing that again. We're going to miss an investment cycle. The next, the project that's kind of in the works, the big one that people hear about is Suriname. So um, Apache, Total down there, that could work or maybe it doesn't, but we don't have a lot of other options. So now we get to 2024, 2025, now what? We're short conventional crude. And that is the type of dynamic that can push prices up. And we do think that it will push prices up because you will need to see a higher price to get the super majors and the majors out there investing again and willing to place billions of dollars in capital. So this, I think the way to look at this is this industry is boom and bust for sure. Are we, have we seen peak oil prices 
And are, is, is that it? Maybe 65, 70, is that it? Probably not. Like, are you going to see it go up above that and then come back down once supply responds? You could. And I think that 2024, 2025 timeframe makes it look pretty, pretty, uh, pretty possible that that actually happens. Oh, it's so interesting and such a big contrast to think of a world where we need to invest in mega projects and have the, the foresight uh, to do that on the time scale that's relevant. Um, awesome question from the audience to talk about natural gas. And um, there's so many dynamics with associated gas. We just had too much associated gas. But now that oil production is coming off, I'm curious about what that does for natural gas prices. What do you think happening over the next year? And is there a chance we'll see um, uh, dry natural gas wells uh, being popular again? What, what does that look like? Yep, good question. I would say that's definitely likely. So we would tell you that the price of gas starting this next winter, when winter shows up, probably Q4, so maybe December, but whenever winter shows up, you are looking at a pretty significantly higher gas price for all of those reasons. That before this crude price collapse, we were expecting about half of the new incremental gas supply in the U.S. to come from the Permian and half of it to come from the Marcellus Utica and then a little bit from the Haynesville, right? But I mean, that was going to be with a focus. Well, now a lot of that Permian associated gas, that's out the window, right? We're even actually seeing shut-ins. So we're seeing less gas in the Permian. We're actually seeing about half a BCF a day less gas in the Rockies because of shutting in DJ crude wells. And so we're seeing that. You're pulling gas out of the market. And the gas market works similar to crude in that prices will do whatever they have to do so that we get to a reasonable storage level by November so that we're ready for the winter. And the gas market resets every fall. Like that's, that's how it works, right? So this year, January, prices for gas collapsed a little bit earlier than usual, but why? Because we were at a really high storage level and the market was saying, this is too much gas. We have to signal some slowdown in supply so that we don't blow through storage at the end of November. So very similar thing to what you're seeing happening here with crude. Storage is important, right? And you cannot, you can't physically blow through storage. So prices do whatever they need to do so that doesn't happen. So prices collapse, they're below two bucks. Then all of a sudden you start seeing shut-ins for gas. Now the market is talking about and pricing in. If you look at the forward strip for gas, you see it at least a dollar higher in December. And I think December is 20 cents, 25 cents higher than November. And so that is already being priced into the market. We haven't seen a seasonal spread like this in gas in a long time. Right? So it's kind of exciting. It kind of takes you back to like 2008, 2009, where it was a little different environment. And so we are expecting average pricing next year to be well above $3 and probably approaching $4 because you do need to get some drilling going in some of the dry gas plays like the Haynesville. Um, probably not the Fayetteville. It's a little too small and not enough operators, but definitely Marcellus Utica, definitely Haynesville. We're going to need to see that targeted drilling or we're not going to have a ga enough gas for next year. And so that's, I think if you're one of those operators and you have some gas exposure, particularly in areas that are close to the market, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great time to start planning ahead and planning for that recovery. Oh, that's so interesting and something to, to be excited about. Never thought I'd hear $4 gas again. So that-, that It's a weird world. It's a really weird world right now. <laughs> happy. Uh, returning to refiners, we have a, a really interesting audience question, which is, um, and, and whatever our uh, recovery looks like, um, you foreshadowed for us an uh, increase in, in gasoline uh, and diesel, but low demand for jet fuel and maybe some of those other, um, uh, other products that, that are required um, once the economy is up and running. Can refiners adjust? Can they adjust for, to meet one demand and not others? Or will there necessarily uh, be a slowdown across the board? 
They, they can. There's, there, there's definitely flexibility in the system. But what I will say is that certain barrels, every barrel crude has a different chemical composition. And so we talk about that in terms of a chemical, an assay. If you hear assay, it's basically operators will send off part of their barrel to a lab. That lab will basically test it under certain um, uh, parameters and tell you what yields you, you should get of all these different fuels if you were to refine it. And so that data tells you the chemical makeup of that barrel and how it will behave at a certain refinery. And then on top of that, every refinery is tooled differently. So in the US, we have the most complex refining fleet in the world. So we can take very heavy barrels that are hard to refine because we have things like crackers and cokers. Like we can do that. A lot of places in the world cannot take that, those really heavy barrels like Canadian oil sands or um, even the really waxy stuff that comes out of Utah. They can't handle that because of, it's hard to refine. You need those bottom units that are kind of messy and pretty expensive to run. So we can handle pretty much anything. And if you can, if you can handle a heavy barrel, you can handle a light barrel. Now, every refinery has a bottleneck, right? So certainly you can't, what you could choose to do is you could choose to go out and buy barrels specifically that make more gasoline. And actually those happen to be unconventionals. So most barrels that come out of unconventional plays tend to be lighter, late, lower or higher API levels. Those higher API barrels produce more gasoline. So that's actually a good thing for recovery is that those barrels will, will have demand pop up. Refiners will be out there looking for those barrels to put them through their refinery to make more high value products, which might be gasoline because gasoline's recovering better than diesel is right now. The other barrels that make diesel, like heavy barrels like Canadian oil sands or Legacy, those might actually take a price hit. So we talk a lot about the price of WTI, but that's one specific type of barrel in one location. You have this active market all over the country for different types of barrels in different locations, moving on different pipes to different refineries. So it's it's very complex the way the system works, but you do see different pricing already for heavy barrels versus light barrels. And some of that, that, that dynamic where lights take a discount, maybe it flips and they start getting a little bit of a premium. Um, so yes, refiners can handle it. Different types of barrels will be in demand differently depending on how these product markets unfold, uh, but you can never just make gasoline. You get other stuff, right? So you still have to deal with that. And then the last data point I would say is that the U.S. actually exports about 3 million barrels a day of refined products right now. And that's not a widely known thing, right? So if you think about it, our refining fleet, the capacity is about 18 million barrels. You can only run about 90% of the time on average. So that takes us to 16 and a half. We export 3 million barrels. And there's a volume swell when you do this. We bring in 3 million barrels from Canada. If you take all of these numbers and you balance it, if you drew a box around North America, certainly, but even the US, we're pretty much already in energy independent, right? We don't need to take a barrel from somewhere else. The reason we do is because those barrels are better suited in our refineries and we send out our light barrels because they can handle refining those. Um, they can't handle the heavies. So all of those things are true. And it simply means it's very flexible. Our refiners will adjust. You might see the inputs, imports and exports change. You're gonna see prices change because of that. Um, but we're very connected to the global market. So, and we're very well suited to handle anything that happens. Well, that's a great tee up to a question I wanted to ask you, which is there's been two fixes touted by different uh, aspects of the oil and gas industry. And there certainly is no agreement. Um, and I'm interested in, in your perspective. One speaks to what you just said, which is that we should stop accepting 
Saudi barrels of oil for our refineries, which are, are tuned to those barrels um, to create more demand for American barrels. I'm curious your thoughts about that. And then the second one is forced uh, production cuts in Texas. Now this is a dated question, but in the, in the event that it comes back up of having regulators actually curtail production, interested in, in your thoughts um, on both of those uh, policy type solutions. Yeah, so I'll, I'll preface this by I am a free market economist, right? So I generally am not on, in favor of government state regulations because generally we don't do it right. right. All those things I just described around refineries and specific product demand, all of those things. If you look at the old Railroad Commission rules, if those were implemented the way that they were designed back in the 60s and 70s, it would have been mayhem. Like you would have, you would have basically said, um, allow the deeper wells to continue to produce. Well, those are the unconventional wells that tend to produce lighter stuff that nobody at the time wanted. Shut in the heavier barrels. Well, that's what people actually want, right? So you would have done all these weird things. And at the end of the day, like we can change some of that, but refiners are gonna buy the barrels that make the most sense in their refinery. And there is a chunk of the refining capacity here that's not owned by US companies. It's owned by um, Saudi Ramco, it's owned by Petrobras, it's owned by um, Petabasa, right? So we have like the Sicko, like we've got some capacity here that's not owned by US companies. And so what you see is some barrels come into the country sourced from those countries for their refineries, right? So that behavior is, is it's just a fact of how the system works. Um, I would also say for the rest, you're, they're going to buy the barrels that make the most sense for their refinery coming from the right place, producing the right mix of products for how they're set up based on what refined products are doing. And we are directly tied to the global refined product market. So if we make a policy change here, might we just monkey around with what happens here? But could you see gas prices go through the roof because of it? You could, right? So there's all these unintended consequences because we are tied to the global market and you really can't, you can't shut that off overnight or else we would no longer be able to send out 3 million barrels a day of refined products. Well, then what, what are we gonna do with it? We can't use it here. So then the refiners just can't run which means they don't buy as much of our domestic crude, right? So the, all those things are connected. So I would say, and we talk, it's interesting that the folks that talk about policy and the things we hear in the public, it never comes across as well-informed with a strong knowledge of how these things actually work and how they play out. Um, I would also say our refining fleet here runs at very high capacity because it's the most complex, it's very safe, and it's very reliable. And we don't want that to change. Right, like we, that gives us a lot of security, national security, it gives our refiners a lot of margin, it, it's jobs, it's a lot of things. It, take, it allows us to push our crude into refineries. If we were to no longer be able to export, we wouldn't be able to run that high. If we here lose domestic supply levels, well, we're not gonna produce at 13 million later this year, we're, we're losing crude production. That's okay, because prices are low. But the fact that that drops, our refineries are probably still gonna run full when demand comes back. So where are they gonna get that crude? If they can't get it here, they'll have to bring it in from somewhere else. So you might see imports increase. You might start hearing news articles around, we're bringing in more from Saudi Arabia. We might even bring in some from Russia, like who knows, right? But that isn't necessarily a bad thing. If we're taking those barrels, we're refining them, we have the higher value refined products, and then we're able to sell them again on a more expensive world market. So these things that you hear, it's not always the doom and gloom and terrible situation that it can sound like. And some of this is simply, we're part of the market and the market actually functions really well. And if we monkey with that, big problems, big problems for us in particular start to pop up. I didn't expect uh, today for you to make everything that feels 
completely random and upside down and unpredictable sound so high functioning. So it's a really interesting perspective. And as some, someone who's a liberal uh, minded libertarian myself, I uh, enjoy le learning this perspective. Um, keep the audience questions coming. They're really good and um, informing the way we're making twists and turns. Um, one audience question that I really love because it speaks to this idea of keeping one eye to the future is, do you see any transformational changes in oil and natural gas demand that could come out of the pandemic? So all, all that that could be around travel, the way we work, the way we consume energy, what are the things you're interested in and watching? So I think there's been a lot of conversation around Will people just work from home more? So are you going to see the structural shift down in oil demand? Or will business travelers not get back on the road ever again? And what I would say is we've, when we've seen events in the past, whether it's an economic dislocation like 2008 or it was something like 9-11 that impacted air travel, it's interesting because human beings are still human beings, right? And we're social people. And a lot of this is tied to macro, right? If you have strong levels of employment, then you have an underlying kind of strength in the business sector, which means there's more money available for you to travel. And there's certain things like sales, like sales folks will always want to be in front of their clients when they're having those conversations. And a lot of that, like we're moving in this and more and more towards a service oriented economy, where it's, whether it's software sales or anything else, that's still growing, right? That's still an important piece of it. So yes, we're all better at working from home now and we can all use Zoom. I mean, everybody, right? Grandparents can use Zoom. Like everyone can use Zoom now which is a good thing. But I think that humans are still humans. And as you start to see recovery happen in a couple of years, our business travelers gonna be traveling again? Yes. Even us, we're starting to open our office this week. And there's a lot of folks that are wanting to come to the office, right? The conversation was maybe they'll just all wanna stay home, but they want to get some kind of human interaction. They wanna have a place maybe away from their children, popping in Zoom videos and all that. So I do think it'll take time to take to make recovery. We'll, we will probably will see a little bit of structural shift. You're hearing rumors around, will the commercial real estate market fall apart? In some places it might, but I, I don't think that we're expecting that like wholesale kind of massacre type situation. So I think it's, it's interesting for us. We go back and we say, we've talked about this before because of different events and it never really happens because people are people and they like to be social. And they like to have an office, even if they don't go there every day. They like to have flexibility, right? But they also don't like to be told you have to stay in your house. And we're seeing that, right? You, we're starting to release restrictions and everyone's just like running around. So I think we know that. And the, the leisure travel part of that, right? That will come back. People still wanna travel. You still wanna see Europe. You still, when it's safe, you still wanna see Hawaii. And so I think it's, it's when you see what's in the media and you see people's reaction, the, people always overreact. Like, oh, it's the, it's the end of travel. This is it, this is, it's over. And it never is, or it's, this is the end of offices, never is. Um, renewables are going to grow, right? We know that, they're going to keep growing. Um, they're growing as a percentage of the stack, but the overall stack is still growing. And everything we see from a technology standpoint that's coming, whether it's autonomous vehicles or more cloud computing and server farms, all of these things take more energy. So everywhere you look, it's more and more energy. It's not less energy. No matter where we're moving, what we're doing, how we're working, it's more energy, which means more demand for everything, for renewables, for oil and gas, for all of it. Again, an optimistic um, perspective, um, which does remind me there have been the international oil and gas majors um, have been really, I think, 
maintaining their commitments to their new energies business and even commenting that we may have seen peak oil demand. I'm curious about your perspective about that. From what you just said, it doesn't sound like you think we've hit peak oil demand, but maybe that was peak energy demand. Yeah, I don't. So peak energy demand, certainly not. Peak oil demand, I also don't think so yet either. I think the verdict is still out in some ways, but like we talk about renewable so much and all these pledges that we're going to be carbon free by 2030 or 2040. And I think the reality of it is the science just isn't there yet. We need some step changes in the science to be able to make those things a reality. And we're not there. Like batteries, battery tech, battery tech, the last big advancement was 40 years ago, right? So what are we talking about with batteries? They're just bigger batteries. So the biggest battery farm in the world is in Australia. And I think we, we, when we ran the numbers, that would power Florida, I think for about two minutes. And what you need, if you were going to actually move the country onto renewables, what it would take is you would need to be able to cover the whole country for two days. And we've actually seen two days, I think 12 times in the past 20 years, where there wasn't enough wind and there wasn't enough solar, even if you had that deployed, to generate enough power for the country. And it was very low levels. So we've seen those data points, and that would, that would be what we would need to be able to generate to, to maintain quality of life. Because right? who's willing to, just for two days, you have no electricity period for the whole country. Like no one's going to be on board with that. So now you need to have battery. You need to have some solution in the meantime. Well, if the largest battery farm in the world would flower, would power Florida for two minutes, we need the whole country for two days, right? So that we're not there. You couldn't put enough batteries in the country. There isn't enough room to be able to handle that with tech as it sits today. We need a step change in the physical science and we will get there. But actually, oddly, that's not what we're investing in, right? We're investing in windmills and solar farms. We should be investing in the underlying science because we will we will see those advancements. We will see those jump forwards, but we're not there yet. Will it happen tomorrow or 10 years from now? Nobody knows, right? Those are like, those are things, very hard things that nobody solved yet. So I look at it and I say, we don't have the tech to get to carbon free by 2030 or 2040. The small places in the country where you're starting to see them trying to get there, like California, are they gonna collapse their power grid? Maybe, right? That I mean, that's a real thing that could happen. So those types of things, we're not there yet. The science isn't there yet. So I say in the meantime, it's gotta be oil, it's gotta be gas. And even with renewables, you use a lot more gas. You see gas-fired power generation being built to backstop renewables because you can't control when it's windy and you can't control when it's sunny. So while we build renewables, we're actually also building natural gas demand. And so I'm still not at a place where I'll say we'll see peak oil demand or when we can predict that. Will it be eventually? Yes. Will it be... In my lifetime, probably not. Will it be in my working life? I think certainly not. I hope not. I hope I'm not working forever. But th those are the things that we look at where it's the policy is completely separate from what the science actually says and what is possible. We will be having two of these interview series focused on the future of energy and tackling these questions. I have a, a bias that this audience knows, which I think decarbonization happens faster with inclusion of the oil and gas industry for the reasons you stated. And we'll, we'll be exploring those um, further. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the industry uh, in North America. Uh, I, it seems like we could expect a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions. What do you foresee? And there's been huge numbers thrown around. 40% of the industry will be out of business. Um, do you see those kind of dramatic predictions coming? And if so, in what time frame? 
We don't. So we track all the public companies are tracking financials. And certainly if you're OFS right now, it's a harder, a much harder environment than if you're EMPs. But in the EMP side, it's really three things that drives you to bankruptcy. It's a high debt ratio, right? So like Chesapeake, we're hearing they've got a debt ratio hovering around five, I think. That's way too high because they're going to get outside of their debt covenant and all of that debt is going to come due. So if you're, if you have a high debt ratio, if you have low hedge coverage, and a lot of folks actually have some pretty decent hedge coverage for this year, call it 60% of production hedged at about 60 to $70. Um, dollars. So it's, it's pretty solid. So this year, there's some protection. And then the third piece is if you have a lot of your debt actually maturing this year, right? So that's, that's the real problem. If you have debt coming due this year, that's what whiting, right? Whiting, what happens? Well, they have a debt maturity. So then the decision is, do I use the cash I have to pay this off or do I restructure and keep the cash for operations and to, to weather the storm and come out of it with a better balance sheet. Well, that was a decision, right? So that's the thing. Like those three things combined is what can push a decision to go into bankruptcy. But even the, the bankruptcies we're seeing are chapter 11, right? It's, it's a restructuring. It's not a complete liquidation of the assets and sell everything off. So we've seen a handful. We saw a couple more at the end of last week. We'll see some more bankruptcies. We will, because some folks do have high debt ratios, debt coming due, and low hedge coverage, but a lot of folks don't. A lot of folks actually had a lot of cash on hand because they were trying to buy or acquire an asset before this happened, and now they just have cash to weather the storm. Many don't have debt maturities coming due because they've very successfully, the industry has learned, push those maturities out so that you're never in this kind of, this rush scenario because you can't, you cannot predict if prices are going to collapse this year. So let's push it out and leave a cushion so that we are protected. So a lot of companies have done that. So we don't have a ton of debt due this year. We don't have a ton of companies with a very high debt ratio and we do have hedge coverage. So we look at it, especially on the EMP side and we say, it's gonna be painful, but they're reacting, right? They're laying down rigs, they're not completing wells, they're waiting to bring on new production until prices recover. And that is also a sign for us that the, it's, the market's working. If the price is this low, you shouldn't be completing wells. You should not be bringing on new wells into what might be the lowest price environment for a while. And so we're not expecting huge bankruptcies. We do expect consolidation, right? We do expect that this is a good time if you are in a position to go buy an asset, you're gonna get a better deal today than you would a few months ago and probably a year from now. So this is a good time if you can to go out and get those solid assets that are on solid rock. Like if you've got good rock, that's what matters. That's always gonna be what matters. And this is a good time to go in and capitalize on some of that. So. Definitely consolidation, not huge numbers of bankruptcies, but some bankruptcies certainly. Um, OFS, that it's a little different, it's a little harder market, right? OFS always gets hit first and it's um, and takes a while to recover. OFS was already not being valued very high before any of this happened, outside of the water specific folks. And so there that it's 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 tough to be OFS right now. Uh, but the EMP side, I think it's it's not gonna be the massacre that many people are predicting. That, that's really amazing. And, and um, our hearts do go out to all our oil field services colleagues at this time. It certainly is a rough time out there. Um, last question we have from the audience, and I want to merge it with one of my own. Um, the, the question is, do you see changes in U.S. politics to stop LNG imports in New York to encourage gas from the Marcellus? Um, and and I'll, I'll let you merge that into just a bigger conversation about LNG export market and how that looks, particularly in a world where gas prices uh, domestically may go up. Yeah, so it's it definitely interesting. So I would say first on the demand front, you're not seeing the level of demand destruction for gas that you're seeing for crude. 
Like we're still seeing strong levels of LNG send out from the US and we can see that daily in the pipeline flow data. So we can see very real time information about what's happening there. And it's some has come off and you've seen, you've probably seen some news articles around force majeures for certain cargoes in Asia, but it's it's been kind of one off. It hasn't been wholesale. So we're still sitting at a relatively high LNG export levels and we expect that to continue. So that's one piece. The piece around New York, well, that is, that's a whole different animal because even I think late last week, we got a, a negative ruling for one of the new Northeast supply projects that was going to go into um, New York that was blocked. The problem is it's, it's very similar to the situation we have here with Boulder, right? Like you have to have these things, you have to have gas to run these homes. You have to have gas in the wintertime to heat these homes. Like you just have to have it. So you have to have paths to get there. And so the, the struggle is like some of those populations in particular are growing and their gas demand use is going up and they're blocking every path to get gas in. So that is how you get these odd cargoes showing up from Russia to the Northeast. And you're like, what's going on? Well, if you can't bring it on pipeline from your neighbor state, then you're gonna have to bring in a cargo another way. Right, because the pipeline grid is a pipeline grid. Gas, you cannot move gas except in a pipeline. You can't do it or ship through a pipeline into the city gate. You can't put it on a truck, right? Those things are just not possible. So the weirdness that's happening up there has a lot to do with, you have more demand growing, you're blocking all the infrastructure to get there. And so what's gonna happen? The market's gonna solve it. If that means buying a, a Russian cargo and bringing it in, that's what's gonna happen, right? So could you enact some policy? Possibly. You're probably going to do it wrong though, right? So now all of a sudden you have a cargo that goes to the Gulf Coast. Maybe they unload, they reload, they move it back up to, to the Northeast, right? I mean, weirdness could happen where effectively it's the same thing. You just moved gas in. You just took a roundabout path to do it. And so that's the problem. So I don't know that we're going to fix that. It doesn't seem like we are with the politics in New York, um, but we're going to keep seeing weird stuff because of that. Yeah, gas um, in the Northeast, gas demand is totally untethered from gas opposition. And uh, both of these things will be true for a long time. And uh, I'm sure we'll be continuing to that discussion when we get past the, the roilings of today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move into our, our lightning round for you, uh, Bernadette, some, some quick questions um, to share a little bit of, your, of yourself. In this um, isolation time, I see you might be in your office, so maybe yeah. you're you have some, welcome back. Um, but have you found any quirky isolation management solutions that those of us who are still relatively isolated could benefit from? I don't know if it's a solution maybe, but it's, I think focusing and on still taking time off, right? Like it's, it's weird now because when you're working from home, you're kind of always at work. So stopping end of day is very difficult. Starting earlier than you might've started before is pretty prevalent. And I think more broadly, sometimes it feels ridiculous to take a day off because what are you going to do? Sit in your backyard. But it's still important to do that. And so I think that's stuff that we've learned over time with my team in particular, that taking time off, even though it feels ridiculous, it helps you recharge and not be on at work all the time. Such a great, such a great point. Do you have a go-to book or if you don't have any time to read, do you have a go-to uh, show that, that you recommend right now? So I do, I do find time to read late at night when my kiddos are asleep. I tend to like, I like fiction and I'm like, I missed my, I should have been a spy. Like that's where I got, I kind of go to. So those are the types of books that I like, but I did recently start some uh, nonfiction and the uh, Peter Zihan. So I hadn't read it, the books before, but like accidental superpowers, the one that I started with, and there's two after that, that I'm currently working through. And those I think are really interesting. If you haven't read them to read them right now, when you're seeing all this upheaval with geopolitics and you're trying, we're trying to rewrite what happens with our behavior with China and all of these things, right? There's a lot of history 
that kind of informs how we got here. And those books do a really good job of painting this picture. And some of those predictions in there are surprisingly true, even though like no one could have predicted this today, but you look around, you're like, well, somehow it's not far off from what we're actually seeing. So it's, it's been pretty interesting oh, to read. That's amazing. I'm writing that down. That sounds good to read. And then last thing, what parts of isolation um, do you want to take forward? Are there some, some new practices or skills that, that you're going to carry on with? You know, I don't know. I think what's really been interesting is like, I still like to travel. And so when it's safe to travel, I want to travel again. But I've also really enjoyed the like not traveling for a period of time and being able to be home with my kiddos. So I think it's kind of this interesting tug where I like the travel, but being home has been really good. So we'll see. I do like the fact that everybody is so up on tech now. Like for me, if I need to be in a meeting in three different states on the same day, I can do that now through through this, right, through Zoom or through WebEx, you couldn't do that when you're physically trying to move to those places. And so I think some of that um, flexibility and some of the, everybody knowing how to use the tech now certainly helps. So those things I think we'll, we'll pull out and maybe a little bit less travel, but not, not completely because I still like to travel. That's awesome. And, and we might not have been able to have this conversation because we would have had to be on a panel somewhere at a conference. Uh, so I'm, uh, this is one of the benefits for me. So um, Bernadette, thank you so much for the time you've given us today. Um, that's our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks to Bernadette for taking the time to share her insights with us. We want to know what you think about what you've heard today. Visit our podcast website at energythinks.com slash podcast. Okay, I'm going to try that again. Sorry. That's our episode for today. Thanks to Bernadette Johnson for taking time to share her insights with us. I want to know what you think about what you've heard here. So please visit our podcast website at energythinks.com slash podcast and let us know. You can subscribe to Energy Thinks on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating. Thanks for listening to Energy Thinks. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you happiness, good health, and returning prosperity. Thank you.